This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey Geekscapists, welcome to a brand new Geekscape podcast. I'm Jonathan London, if this is your first Geekscape, and every uh, week I like to sit down with a brand new storyteller and talk about uh, their work in, maybe it's movies or comics or uh, TV. In this case, it's going to be all three of them. I'm sitting down with Miss Sandy King, Mrs. Sandy King Carpenter, and we're sitting here in your office, and we're going to talk a bit about a lot of things. Um... Your career, but also things like your brand, your your comic book line, Storm King, and uh, I have, I've done a lot of research. Um, <laughs> I don't even know where to start because uh, your career spans uh, such a so many like really cool films and comics and TV and um, really I sitting here I'm like okay how do you wrap your head around this one London because uh, at Geekscape we have fans of Obviously, the Carpenter films, um, the horror films, the genre films, uh, and then we have a ton of comic book fans. And you kind of have your hand in everything. So, yes. starting somewhere, <laughs> I come into your office and there's, you know, Assault on Precinct 13 posters and posters for The Thing and, uh, and Big Trouble and obviously your big tower of Godzillas. Yes. I love that shelf of Godzillas and anybody who has a dog running around too. Is definitely oh, yeah. in in my book, and and you don't have the the troublemaker dog here, you know you have the visiting dog that belongs to David J. Scow, uh-huh. um, Muggsy Parker Scow, but uh, Mr. Bones, my dog is not here because he's not learned how to stay quiet through a whole interview. <laughs> what kind of dog is Mr. Bones? He's a miniature husky. He's a Pomsky. And and I think huskies just have to stay incredibly active. They have to be worked constantly. Yeah. And so how do you, I mean, working in an environment like this where you've got multiple people working different stations and it's dog friendly, how do you keep Mr. Bones out of your business? Not successfully. (laughs) (laughs) But he has his dog visitor friends. Uh And so he has his own life here. So we have production company slash dog boarding. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's not meant to be, but sometimes it becomes that way. Well, I, I think that uh, it keeps you vibrant. I think that oh, having yeah. the energy of a natural animal in your environment, I think it keeps you connected. Well, and our production designer actually lives next door to the office, and he's got two French bulldogs, so they come over, and it turns into a you know, dog house party mm-hmm. while we're doing other work. But I think that way it's a little like having a child care center while you're working. You know, everybody with their dog just goes ahead and comes to work with it, and they don't have to worry about it. I love the wrestling. The, the, I, I had a Frenchie, and the wrestling that they do with their mouths is just like, it, 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 it's something yeah. aggressive, but it's also sad in a way. It's, it's like, where, you guys aren't getting anywhere with this. No, it's a little pathetic, but, you know, <laughs> it's like having two short dragons that come through, too, snorting. So, um, but on days like this, when, when the outside world comes to visit, we usually limit the, uh, mm-hmm. the playground. I appreciate you having me. Um, there's just a lot to take in here. Um, no, I mean, it, there's, a, there's a, a ton of different influences. You've got an Asian influence to your desk. You've got the very famous no whining sign on your, on your yeah, desk. Yeah. How, how long have you had the, the no whining sign? Because it seems to get covered in every conversation you have. Oh, forever. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even remember when it first started. Um, you know, on some movie... You know, where there had been like a cardboard one, then suddenly the leather gold tooled one mm-hmm. showed up. Um, do you remember the, I mean, do you remember no. the card? Was the cardboard one that is going back to your script supervisor days? Does it go, it go back a couple? No, no, it was all during producing days because mm-hmm. I have an open door policy in my offices. So, you know, as opposed to most production offices that have the closed locked door and all sure. that kind of stuff, I take the doors off the hinges when we're on location and anybody can walk in. But, and, no uh, whining. No whining. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's just... Uh... As a script supervisor, just looking all the way back, uh, I was talking to someone. Uh, do you know Brett Leonard? He's the director who did, um, he did, uh, you know, um, Virtuosity, and he did the, the, the VR movie with Tim, uh, with uh, Pierce Brosnan. What was it called? The, the um, oh, I don't remember. The, the Lawnmower title, Man. Yeah, yeah. And and we were talking about Killing of a Chinese Bookie, the Cassavetes movie. Oh yeah. You were a script super on that one. Yeah. I mean, it seems like going through just your your script supervisor years would be enough because the people you've worked with from um, working with Cassavetes or working with Michael Mann on Thief, which is an incredibly overlooked movie. It mm-hmm. seems like people think that Michael Mann's career kind of started a little bit after Thief when people started to really recognize him for Miami Vice and et cetera, et cetera. But the Thief style. is an incredible movie. Yeah. And you're on sets with him. You're on, you're on The Outsiders with Coppola. What are you picking up there? Well, I think you really... Um, I, I have found that every work experience I've ever had, I learned something. And I've been fortunate enough to have worked with this great range of, of really strong directors that are all different kinds of storytellers and all have different um, set personas and different creative personas. So I was really lucky to do things like John Hughes, Sixteen Candle, and at the same time, uh, Rumblefish with Coppola and, you know, uh, and working with Cassavetes, as you said, on Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Um, or, uh, Walter Hill on The Long Riders. It's incredible. Then, then you know, that informs who you are. And I think nowadays it's kind of a shame that too many people all want to start at the top and not work their way through learning an apprenticeship with people that know more than they do or people that have all these talents. 
Because if you're only in isolation, I don't think you're drawing from the history of your craft. Right. Um, so I feel really lucky that I came up the way I did. Um, and each one of those directors, producers, DPs left their mark on me. And it w- was that a, uh, a product of the Corbin School, having contact with those directors? How did you get into script supervision for people of that caliber? I lied my way onto a job at, at AFI mm-hmm. back in those days. And um, because I was coming from animation and I wanted to do live action. And there were two positions open on this film um, that a guy who's now a famous agent, Rand Holston, was, was producing. And there was uh, a, a script supervisor or caterer. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, if I do script supervision, I'll at least be making movies. Right. <laughs> if you're a caterer, you're making tacos. And so I just kind of, you know, I was very lucky in that my background in still photography and animation stuff made it so that I understood screen direction and lens sizes and all of those mm-hmm. kinds of things. And um, and then there was a, a another... Uh, friend of mine that was working a show in New York, The Taking of Pelham 123, yeah. with a very famous script supervisor, Nancy Tonnery. It's and, a great movie with Shaw. Uh, they're yeah. phenomenal in that movie. And I said, I need, to, they're asking me about what kind of book I keep, and I've just answered standard, because I have no idea that script supervisors kept books. Yeah. And, and I knew they did continuity, I said, but I don't know, I, I've just lied my way into a job I need to know what to do and I meanwhile I went into an editing room stole a couple pages out of everyone was at lunch Xeroxed them to go figure it out and then Nancy Tonnery sent me some pages of Pelham 123 so that I looked at you know what the form was I was supposed to be doing out of sheer panic learn sure I was saying that too uh, I was filming on Saturday and I was looking for a sound person a sound person at the budget that I had left for reshoots it was a reshoot day mm-hmm. And I found a friend of a friend. I had never met this person, and she showed up to do sound. And she, and I said, you, you don't really know sound, do you? And she said, no, and I had all the equipment, and it was okay. And I said, it's okay, I know sound. Mm-hmm. And you did the right thing. You leapt before you figured out how to fly, and that's the right thing. She had just moved out of here a few months mm-hmm. ago, and I said, I said, you're doing the right thing. You have to just get the opportunities first, and then you have to fill the opportunities. But don't let fear keep you from an, a, a chance, because you've made a career out of that First little white lie. Yeah. My my bi- <laughs> my big fear was that I'd screw up somebody's movie. Sure. And um, but I felt pretty confident because of the background in the animation and having to do various things that really required screen direction and matching and things like that. that I thought, well, how much worse can I be than the other student that may fill in and do this? No, not a lot of people actually know what they're doing out here. A lot of people are doing this stuff and. Um, and because the medium changes so quickly, because the technology and the things that are inherent change so quickly, you really just need to focus on story and focus on some level of conveying that story. Uh, and the technical aspects of it, like you said, like especially in the age of YouTube, people can just pick up on a lot of things right now or yeah, apprenticeships. Yeah, it shows, unfortunately. Yeah. I wish more people did go back to learning what they're supposed to mm-hmm. do, because I think that uh, you know the people that came up learning costuming by apprenticing at Western Costume and Universal and things like that, know more about fitting and finishes and fabrics and those kinds of things. So I think it's kind of overrated to just um, say I've watched a bunch of movies so I can make a movie. 
um, there's a certain liberation in that, that everyone can express themselves, but not necessarily as effectively as if they trained. It, it, uh, it shows in a texture. It shows in some yeah. level of, uh, I think that the audience um, can tell uh, if something is just digitally added to a scene or not. I saw the new It movie and I was like picking things out that were felt like they could have just been practical shots mm -hmm. with props and I'm like, did they just add that hat into the river digitally? I never know. I mean, it's it's. There's lots that we can do if we learn how to, if we use the new tools that are available to us, uh, and don't aren't scared of them. Right. But you can't. Again, it has to be the right tool for the right job. As much as if you were fixing a car. And just because you can uh, doesn't necessarily mean you should. Absolutely. I mean, it's all about the storytelling. It's about the illusion. We're supposed to make magic. We're supposed mm -hmm. to immerse you in another universe. So everything that draws you out of that is a minus. Mm -hmm. It's uh, There's a bunch of student filmmakers every year that make movies without producers, without script supervisors, without all these other things. But what you get when you have the whole package going for you is less distraction on the screen. Mm -hmm. People that really know what they're doing. People that know that silk fabric reflects differently than polyester. Um, all of those little touches. I think one of the reasons people love the uh, the British period things like uh, Downton Abbey and and the favorite and all of those is because they have this magnificent set of wardrobes, locations, all of that that create a depth for you to walk into. You get to immerse yourself in that reality, and you're not drawn out by a distraction. Um, Cassavetes in particular, or someone like Walter Hill or, or, or John Carpenter, a lot of their sequences are without dialogue. You have these incredible designs, these buildings of tension. Or I love the action sequence in Killing of a Chinese Bookie where he goes in the house <laughs> and, and, and he gets caught and he just shoot the place up. Um, for a script supervisor, in looking at things like continuity, especially in an action sequence like these directors put a lot of them in their films, um, there's a lot of things to, to keep track of, especially because they're coming at you in small s segments and there are a lot of them for these action sequences. Uh, what were some of the tools that you picked up from someone like Cassavetes on that first film or you'd pick up from John when there's no dialogue on the screen, which is what I think a lot of people assume a script supervisor does. It's like, let's just make sure the lines have been covered and that everything will end up in the editing room, all right. But you're really looking really detailed-wise at, con at continuity. You're supposed to be a safety net for mm -hmm. the director. You're supposed to understand, first of all, it's pyramidal. Uh, you want the tone of the scenes to stay the same. Often you're shooting one half of a scene a month apart from another half of a scene. You want a continuity so nobody sees the artifice. Sure. Um, so you're looking for tone, you're looking for intent, you're looking for what the director hoped to get out of that scene, and he's busy working with the actor and maybe he's forgotten about some other continuity issue. Um, so it's an overall continuity you're looking for, not just keeping track of the lines. You're keeping track of, of uh, screen directions and movements and things that, again, if they aren't correct, will pull you out of the experience of watching the movie. So. As a script supervisor, you're a liaison between the shooting crew, the editorial staff, and production. And you're providing all the information to the editor about the intent from the set. You're providing literal continuity on the set to the actors and the director. And you're then reporting on 
because uh, you do production reports of how much of the movie you've shot, uh, how many pages you've shot, how long it's running to production so that they know how much of the movie's actually getting done and what are the pieces that are being left out and what has to be picked up and what else are you doing. So it's a great base for having an overview of making movies. And I was going to ask you how you segued into the producing aspect on They Live, where suddenly you're, you're not only the script supervisor, but you're also the producer. Well, actually, it happened earlier. Mm-hmm. I was an associate producer on a thing called Key Tortuga, a pilot for CBS. Okay. And I used to direct second units for uh, a director named Jerry London over at Spelling on the pilots for, you know, those, <laughs> those right. things. And then um, Prince of Darkness was the first one of the Carpenter films that I was an associate producer on. But there, nobody knows it because I got a main title single card credit Mm. of script supervisor because I had a bet going with Jody Tillon, the costume designer for Michael Mann, Mm -hmm. uh, from when she first got her designer's card and had her main title single card credit. I had said, gosh, when I grow up, I want a main title single card credit because a script supervisor won't get one. So I had it in my contract on the, uh, the, t- the Universal films, Prince of Darkness and They Live, that I could be called whatever. I was one of the producers. And I said, okay, I want a main title single card script supervisor. And the world came to it. And they go, you can't do that. You can't do that. And I said, yeah, I can. It's in my contract. Uh-huh. And I was. Uh, so <laughs> I said, that's what I want. And it was really all um, based on this bet with Jody Tillon that I could get a main title single card. So, you, so technically credit. on that film, you did not get your producer title. I didn't get the associate title, producer the associate, yeah. credit, no. <laughs> I mean, I did on my contract sure. and all that, but as far as the public knows, mm-hmm. um, and I've, it's always amazed me that it doesn't occur to anyone that they've never seen another main title single card script supervisor <laughs> credit. When everyone goes, well, you didn't produce that, did you? Said, yeah. Well, well, I think what I'm saying is that when you're in charge of so many of the cohesion between all those departments mm-hmm. as a script supervisor, uh, coming into this conversation, the question is, how did you segue? But it sounds like you segued pretty seamlessly because already you're making sure that all these departments are communicating and delivering the product yeah. as seamlessly as possible. No, I wasn't tough. I no. Mean, at, the, at the time when we were doing that, uh, Larry Franco was the first AD and producer. Uh, He was the main producer. I was an associate producer. And, you know, what we found was that it kept our operation uh, on set pretty seamless for decision-making and pretty immediate. And um, we used to have jokes that we would still be doing it that way, you know, when we were in our 80s. Um, It didn't wind up working out that way, Hmm. but, but it was an efficient way to work. And everybody always asked me questions anyway, so just expanding the realm of what I was handling wasn't that difficult. And when you think about that era, the late 70s, mid to mid-80s, late-80s era, uh, today we think about the future is female and women in film and in the equality movement. What was it like then when you, the, the people who were mainly in power were, were the men? How, what what did you have to fight for? What was the climate like in the in the 80s? And here you are coming up through the ranks. What were the walls that you had to almost knock down? I really didn't have to. Uh-huh. I mean, all my breaks were given to me by men. Sure. I'd say one of the hardest things at the time was women who got power liked being the only woman in the room. 
And so the irony was they were tougher to bond with than the men who I'd always worked with. And that was a particularly unique time in Hollywood where I think that, um, ironically, there were more enlightened men than there are now and less entitled uh, people because you didn't have this influx of people from the outside. It was all people that had worked their way up. And I think that when you do that, there's a camaraderie from, from being a member of the crew. You're in the trenches together, right. You're in it together. And I really didn't have a lot of problems. And I think the other thing is how you carry yourself, what you're willing to, you know, I, it's, it's a matter of um, it never occurred to me to compromise mm-hmm. who I was. And I was, I was raised by men. Sure. So I didn't find it a particularly intimidating atmosphere. Who was James? Uh, I'm blanking on it. James Cameron's producer, also a female. In, in Catherine. Catherine. Bigelow. Big, uh, no, the, she was the or director. The um, um, was it Kathleen? It was not. Um, but she talks about being in the Corman School as well and, deli- and, and, having, to, well, yeah, and having to just drive back and forth and deliver dailies. And oh, coming up through Corman, you learned yeah. a lot. I mean, that was an era where... You know, Todd Hollowell went on to be the executive producer on all the Ron Howard films and stuff. He was an assistant prop man. Mm-hmm. Um, you had John Davison and, and um, uh, Joe Dante and those guys working in the editing room. And so everybody was learning their stuff and doing the best they could. Um, I think the biggest shock for me was coming out of this this intensity of everybody just just ball busting to get these low budget films done and the first network tv show i did later people saying ah it's good enough for 21 inches you know and it's like you're going where's that attitude come from you know i think the big thing is that you just take the enthusiasm you had in the tough days and manage to figure out how to hold on to it mm-hmm. when you're it, does that lend itself to genre fiction where on a film set these creatures don't exist. You have to really sell creatively a lot of the, uh, a lot of the gags, a lot of the beats, a lot of the edits, a lot of the, the special effects, especially when we, we don't have the computers to smooth things out. We don't have that stuff. So you guys on a movie like The Thing, that's, that's a really hard movie to make. It's well, got so film. many tricks. And even with whatever the budget was, there's a lot of sleeve rolling up that has to go into a sequence where it mixes claymation, it mixes stop motion, it mixes a million things. Well, ultimately, at the end of the day, you have to remember, uh, as much as everything's digital now, but, uh, and this is going to you know, be a date me throwback, but it's one frame at a time. Sure. You have to just focus on, the, on, on problem solving the, the scene at hand. Break it down into its pieces. Don't panic over the whole thing. And I think that, um, you know, that applies to any film, whether it's Darkest Hours with with Gary Oldman playing Winston Churchill or uh, a creature feature now that that has a uh, demonic possessed monster in it. You still have to deal with the prosthetics, deal with with the the demands of the day. Mm-hmm. And that's our job. Sure. I mean, we're journeyman workers who know how to put the illusion on the screen. But coming out of a place where the money hose wasn't going to just wash the problem away. 
Never will. Never will. There is no such thing. Right. And that's what Jonathan Howell, you know, John Houseman, that's his term. And, mm -hmm. I, and, and he was one of my teachers back in the day. And he would always refer to the money hose. And it's like, the money hose will wash things away. And nah. it's like, what? It's a myth. I mean, it's sure. a myth. Because you never have enough time or money, whatever <laughs> your project is. Doesn't matter what it is. There's very few people that have had the luxury to just spend whatever they want and take however long they want. I mean, that's just kind of a fantasy. Uh, maybe Waterworld did because they wanted to take the tax right off. But outside of that, there were people busting their asses to solve those problems every day of a world covered in water. Yeah, and that's well documented, too. That movie at the time was, everybody talked about it as being the big one that was going to destroy studios. Yeah, well, they always have a big one that's going to destroy them. <laughs> right, you know, right. There's always something. Heaven's Gate was going to destroy them. Yeah, new Waterworld line, yeah. was going to destroy them. Lord of the Rings was going to destroy them. Um, and Heaven's Gate was United something. Artists, I remember. Yeah. And that was a really great book as well. It's uh, Brick's book. Mm -hmm. That was a, There's a really good book about the Heaven's Gate and Oh, yeah, United all Artists. kinds of stuff went on on that. But, you know, the point being that you still, no matter what the show is, if I if I budgeted the new Godzilla, I'll guarantee that there wouldn't be enough money for what we wanted to do, mm -hmm. and you'd still have to make compromises. It's what you do. You think up a five, ten, and twenty-five dollar solution to all problems, and you pick your your spots where you want, where you need your payoff. It's not all equal. It's not. You just want to be sure that you're creating enough of an illusion, and paying off the audience expectations in the best way you can. But it's all compromise. So, why gravitating towards genre stories? It's fun. Yeah. I mean, also <laughs> Did you grow up on it? Where'd you grow oh, up? Oh, yeah. I grew, I grew up uh, half LA, half Colorado, mm -hmm. and I, I, I grew up on, um, but I read more of it. I, like, when I was 10, I you know, read the original Frankenstein and Dracula and Island of Dr. Moreau and things like that. Um, I like all kinds of movies. Sure. I'll make all kinds of movies. And you, you have. See, I will. Um, but... You know, I think that horror in particular is a, is a great storytelling medium. It's an allegorical medium. You know, there is no such thing as a horror subject. That's a reaction. Mm -hmm. So when you have things you want to say and issues you want to deal with, um, horror is a great uh, vehicle. You know, the, this genre, the thriller genre, the creature genre is a way to say other things. And I think that Romero was one of the best at sure. that because keeping just in the strict zombie genre that he was in, every decade it seemed like he was weaving with everything that society was throwing at him and commenting oh, yeah. in turn. Well, when you have, you had Romero, you have Cronenberg, you have John, they're all, they were all speaking to different issues in our lives. Mm -hmm. You know, John, John is always, you know, what is it that makes you human? Who are you? Uh, you know, he has the anti-hero and he's a reflection of ourselves not wanting to deal with things and then being forced into things and being the unlikely hero. And the Jack Burton stuff is always, sure. It's he's, he's the, the funny version of yeah. Kurt's character in the thing that is thrust into a situation he doesn't want to be in. But it's in John Nada the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that, you know, you have uh, a body disassociation from Cronenberg. Mm. And, you, and then you had George, who was literally talking about societal issues, 
you know, with the black hero and no one wanting to be rescued by him and eventually killing him. I mean, come on. You know, that's a whole societal thing right there. And is ahead of your, uh, completely ahead of its time. Yeah. While paralleling what was going on. Sure. And what were the, what were the, th- do you, were you part, I mean, obviously you were being married to John, like the storytelling process, how do you, when, when, he, when he gets an impetus, when you get an impetus and there's a question that you, that is, that, it, that is something that you are wrestling with and it's going to materialize into a film, it's going to materialize into a, a script. Um, what are, how do you start breaking it down and taking it and externalizing it so you can turn the question around in your head and start associating dialogue, images, a structure to it in order to convey the art? Well, I think, you know, whether it's a comic book, a television show, or a movie, you still have to figure out why, what is it you're trying to tell and why? You know, what's your purpose in making that story? Um, now, whether it's that you have a message you want to put out and you, you craft around that, or you have this cool set of scenes and that somehow pays off into another idea you have ever had, we're ultimately telling stories around a campfire. Mm-hmm. And you just decide what's the best medium for it. It's just like all comic books don't make good movies. All movies don't make great comic books. Um, the new streaming uh, uh, trend in, in filmed entertainment yeah. allows you to expand stories that would otherwise have been an hour and a half movie and becomes kind of an interesting, you know, limited series where you're going for six or eight or ten episodes of something because you're able to explore the universe you've created more fully. And it changes um, what your storytelling dynamic is based on the medium and how it's going to be presented. What were the things that were being explored in in They Live? Well, They Live, I think, you know, it, it was it was the the 80s dynamic of, you know, who had we become? You know, what had we left behind? Who are you? And the, the simplest explanation for, uh, for that era was that aliens had invaded us and we were no longer ourselves and we lacked humanity. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that, that that became a way to take an invasion from outer space to explain something that's very personal and very deep to us. Who are we as, as a society? I've always thought this, and tell me if you think that this is something that you guys would have wrestled with, but with every iteration, what I think is one of the, I think it's the best horror story ever told, and I think Romero may have agreed because he made the unofficial adaptation of it in Night of the Living Dead, but um, I Am Legend is, they, everybody, uh, yeah. everybody tries to take swings at it, and when I look at the adaptations of I Am Legend and how, how uh, maybe the Vincent Price movie did the best, but uh, I always thought that that was a movie that should have been John and Kurt in the 80s mm-hmm. in Los Angeles because of the language of claustrophobia, the, the language of other coming in. And the, oh, a man, it could be really interesting. I mean, yeah. that was the era to make an, uh, yeah, like an I Am Legend movie. Everybody wanted to make I Am Legend. In the 80s, right. Everybody. Remember Schwarzenegger was going to be an I Am Legend everybody for a long time. Everybody wanted to do I Am Legend. It uh-huh. would have been all different movies depending on who did it. But, sure. Uh, yeah, that would have been cool. I think that's the team. I think that was the in in some alternate universe. A young me is watching that movie on TV when my parents aren't watching. Yeah, you know, I mean, there, there's there's a Star is My Destination. Same way, that's another one that mm-hmm. you know would be awesome. I mean, things that are dealt with again in the fantasy genre, meaning science fiction, horror, fantasy. 
you know, allow us to explore ourselves. What have you learned when you think about some of these films? What, 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 are, the, what are the takeaways from some of your favorite movies that you put together? Like, what are the things that you turned a corner internally on some of these? I don't know if I did that as much as I learned how not to not to screw up. You know, you you always have an eight by ten glossy when you've made a mistake. Um, you know, you don't always know uh, what you've done right when you're successful. Sure. So I think that that the biggest and mistakes are included. Like I said, when Dean Devlin came on the show, we talked about that Godzilla movie that he made with Roland Emmerich and how he notched that up as something that he shouldn't have touched. Well. You know, I think you have to be committed to whatever your story is. And I think the biggest, the biggest thing that I got from the various directors and producers I worked with coming up was a dedication to story. Mm-hmm. And if you're dedicated to the story and you understand what it is you're presenting and you care about it, you're halfway there. The yeah. other half is... The, the other half, man, <laughs> you're, you're in for a world of hurt. That's the tape and the glue and the shoestrings. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, everybody thinks it's cocaine and limousines. It's not. It's, you know, working all night long and and uh, and uh, in bad places, in bad situations. But it's in service of the story. Uh-huh. And with that many... As, as the career gets bigger, because obviously we were talking about the Corman School and we're talking about Cassavetes, and these are fairly independent productions and I'm guessing they weren't as big as later on when the success of the 80s and then the 90s started coming together all the way through uh, Ghosts of Mars and stuff like that um, as as the movies got bigger how was it how do you hold on to story how do you keep the cooks out of the kitchen how do you keep things focused so that there's a a pure storyline. There's a, there's a pure narrative here. Or the story's where you start. Sure, but the when these people start coming in, size, they're irrelevant. Mm-hmm. There's one man hired for his vision. That's the director. Sure. One woman hired for her vision. It's the director. Everything else serves that vision. Um, people think a producer is a power position. It's not. It's cleaning up after the elephants. It's making <laughs> sure that you are providing to the crew what they need in order to implement that vision. It's, it's a logistics position if you're doing it right. So everybody's other voices should be irrelevant to what the original vision was. Yeah, but in our industry where there's people who want to wrangle that sort of thing or they want to see something in your project that is not their project, but, but they, they have roles in it financially or in, in some Sometimes business Sometimes you've got to say no. Yeah. You know, I mean, again, you have to serve the project. Mm-hmm. The day that the project isn't being served, you walk away. Um, Tales for a Halloween Night, when it was at Universal, was the TV series, and it had gotten a green light. It was greenlit by Sci-Fi, but mm-hmm. the unfor- but but see, that's a and that's spun off of your t- off of, off of the Storm King comic series, right? The problem there is to say it was greenlit. I mean, yeah, it was greenlit, so they can announce it and stuff. Um, but it was, it's, a, it's a difficult show to decide what it's going to be because they've based it off of a horror anthology. By its nature and how we put together that horror anthology yearly, it's a box of chocolates of horror. It has no central vision. So you have to decide if you're going to make it for TV and for a series, you say, okay, are we taking the essence of of uh, are we going to go Twilight Zone-ish where it's story of the week? Are we going to go Black Mirror where there's a theme for the season? 
are we going to go a bigger universe that you unpeel the layers to and it's one thing at the end of season one and by season three you've unveiled a whole other puzzle. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you do that then captures the essence of what we put together as a uh, graphic novel once a year anthology? Um, or are you just taking the title and the brand? And ultimately, the reason um, that deal didn't go forward at Sci-Fi was um, they were stuck with the title and the brand, but they didn't know how to. They didn't know what they wanted out of it. Mm-hmm. And you can only waste so much time on that. Yeah, it, there's got to be some meat on the bones, or else. Yeah, and there's it nothing has to. Chew to on. There's a reason the brand means something after this many years. Mm-hmm. So you don't just do it to have a deal. In taking it to Paramount. Or in the age of streaming, there's, there was a question I wanted to ask you about this, the streaming and the discoverability of it, because obviously you've worked on so many films that have ended up as cult films. Is is that something that's still possible? Because it it, it feels like VHS and home video and that in in the fact that things had really long tails. There wasn't an ADD culture quite yet, uh, the way that we do, where Netflix has something new every week. They have several things new and. There's multiple platforms. There's th- there's hundreds of thousands of platforms. There's so many platforms between the uh, the internet, and the Hulu's and the Netflixes, and we still go to the theaters. And there's a million places to find stories. But back in the day, there were a couple movies that came out a year that were genre films, and then if you didn't see it in the theater, they ended up on VHS, DVD, and it ended up at the home video. And it felt like the the discoverability of it. Yeah. And how do you make it's a cult different. movie today? Well, I, first of all, it's never your goal. Your mm-hmm. goal is just to tell a story. Sure. The path to ruin is when you're already planning your Academy Award acceptance <laughs> speech just because you have a great shot going. Um, you know, I think that, again, you have to focus on the story you want to tell. And then now there's different choices for what's the best outlet for that. And that's where it got really interesting to explore uh, first, you know, cable television, which allowed you to go outside the the lines a little bit, but now streaming, which allows you to, like I I touched on before, expand the movie experience with a story that isn't necessarily a a a series like Friends that's going to be talking about twenty years later and how many episodes you did but is a a slightly wider universe you're able to present by virtue of, say, making a limited series of 10 or 12. Mm -hmm. And yet you have this wider canvas. Uh, You're always going to be competing for the attention of the audience. Right. You were even back when it was just movies to VHS. Um, Everybody thought they had this wide range of entertainment choices and free television at the time. So, you know, that was, that was the big movie, uh, movie companies were terrified by TV, that they would be put out of business because people could watch stuff for free at home. Mm-hmm. It didn't happen. So I think that you just have to choose what's the best format for the story you want to tell and hope that there's enough promotion to cut through the noise in the marketplace that someone finds it. Right. But, in a, for example, Fred Decker, who made... Um, he made Night of the Creeps, and then he made right. Monster Squad. And then Monster Squad came out, and it, it was a thud. And and, and, and Fred took that to heart. But over the course of 20 years, with home video and HBO, they look up in 2004, 
and suddenly the Alamo Draft House is playing Monster yeah. Squad, and there's a line around the block. And in in my 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 real question is, how do you get that when our society is tr the, the, there's so much churn now in the product that a movie, the new Fred Decker who makes the Monster Squad, and it's a failure, but over the course of 20 years, it becomes this thing. You can't plan it. There's a, there's no way you can plan it. You can't. Plan is it even possible with this much churn? For Who something to, to sit we'll for 20, 20 years. years from now, won't we? Right, because like Willy Wonka was a failure when it comes out, but mm -hmm. then obviously Cable saves it, and these movies become profitable over. Yeah. Yeah, they find their audience. There is no way. There is no way to tell what the future brings. You just roll with it, and you roll with the opportunity. Again, you just have to look at it as this is the opportunity to tell the story this way. If people get it, they get it. If they don't, they don't. You know, there's there's nothing you can do about that. And maybe Stranger Things is the error to that kind of thing that you guys had. Maybe the, the, the new cult stuff is, it happens in a much shorter window, it's much louder at the moment, but it's something like a stranger thing. It's promotion, they put a lot right. of money behind it. You know, it's, it's when you do something, the marketing now is gigantic mm -hmm. because of having to cut through the noise. But it's the same in comic books. How do you compete as a small company against Marvel and DC? Because they have these giant conglomerates on top of them, well, and pumping they, money and into they, them. And they have massive amounts of product, and, and some that are heaped in, in history and mythology that have long-running fandoms. Well, you, the answer is you're not going to be Marvel and DC. Sure. Don't worry about it. You know, you just try and do the best work and hope that the sheer quality of it catches on by word of mouth and that you come through for the fans. And that's how we do comics. But and, do I have any illusion that I'm DC? No. <laughs> you don't, I think you steer pretty far right of those stories. You say, well, what's the point of even competing with it? I, I mean, not that the superhero genre is not completely oversaturated just to begin with. It is. But you guys are taking a hard left away from that kind of thing. Well, that's just not a story we tell. Sure. You know, uh, we tell the stories that still appeal to us. And that are within our genre because that makes sense because that's what the brand has become um, and you know do what we can in the way of, of interviews marketing appearances at, co at comic conventions to have that word get out that they exist and the big deal is to have someone who wants to hear those voices in, in Geekscape is the, the go check out Storm King comics like please uh the product's really high, and obviously Hollywood's starting to notice with some of these uh, these deals. But um, what I like is that there's a distinct voice to it. You guys are throwing mysteries, even in a science fiction book, uh, or you know, um, or it, a horror title. You guys are doing something where it's it's not spelled out. You guys are playing with pace and structure in a way that a lot of comic books aren't saying. Oh, this is Peter Parker. He got bit by a spider and now you can get the rest of the story. It's, you may not know until you get all five issues or the first trade paperback mm -hmm. graphic novel collection that what the whole cohesive story is. It's no. kind of, yeah. So, so <laughs> I think what I'm trying to say is the other way that you guys are turning a hard left away from Marvel and DC is uh, they have the problem that every month their book has to be a story in and of itself and I think Joe, Joe Casado when he was editor-in-chief of, of Marvel said it and I, I've said it on the show before that 
like TV, every episode is somebody's first episode. Every issue is somebody's first yeah. issue, and they're going to pick it up. You know, if it's not issue three, they're going to need it's going to need to be a little bit of a of a contained story. Now with binge viewing and these things all hitting at once, and what you guys have is digital, uh, is the aim the graphic novel so that that is the one story as opposed to single issues, and they're all available. You know. I- Everybody's been debating, the new thing mm-hmm. being debated in comics now, as, as you probably know, is is to do away with the floppies and go straight to the trades. I love the floppies. I just and, love holding and, them. And I think that the floppies are a great way, uh, first of all, for to slow things down, have a little delayed gratification, um, because I'm kind of against this, this just pouring of content into somebody. Um, but I find at the conventions... Uh, in the comic book stores, people want to taste. They want to see what the story's going to be. And then if that's the format, and this is just my editorial position, is that the story should unfold over the the course of the issues. Mm-hmm. It isn't self-contained. You don't read one and you're done. It's not an episodic monster of the week. No. And, uh, I mean, the anthologies are a little like that. It's the box of chocolates of sure. horror. You, you sit down with that, and you don't need to have read volume one before you read volume four. Sure. Or even the first story before you read the third story. Um, that's giving in to people that just want to lie down at night and have, you know, their couple of short horror stories and go to sleep. Hopefully I'll keep them awake. Mm-hmm. Um but I think in terms of the other things, like the tales of science fiction and what we're coming up with is uh, night terrors as well, um, some of those can go straight to the uh, trade or straight to the graphic novel. Um, depends on the pacing of the story. Depends on whether I think that payoff happens well enough for floppies because you have to have a real bang-up ending for the floppies. Mm-hmm. Some things leave you hanging. There's one story in particular I'm thinking of that leaves you a little bit eerie in space. Well, you can't... That's not satisfying in a 22-page book. But it can be at the end of a graphic novel where you're left with a ooh, eerie. Sure. Um, so I think that determines more of my choices there. But comic books leave the pace to the reader. And coming with, yeah. and, and I mean, obviously, there's things you can do. You can fill a page with captions so that it slows them down, or you can give a big splash page with zero captions that'll well, just let them sit you, back. That's how you drive that car. Sure. The 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 cliffhangers and page turns and those things are an integral part of your pacing, um, unlike writing for movies and that kind of thing. Was your appreciation and your literacy in comics did it come up parallel with films or was, was comics something that you got into after being a filmmaker uh did you grow up on comics basically i grew up on comics i wasn't you know i i wasn't uh one of those diehards i didn't live near a comic shop so i didn't have the experience that other people in in other kinds of towns where they went in each week and got sure. their comic and followed the next part of the story um, I'd say more equivalent to that was, you know, I read the comics in the newspaper mm-hmm. where you saw what was going to happen the next week um, or the next day. But uh, I got more attuned to comics with our kids growing up, and they were, you know, giant Venom and Spawn and Silver <laughs> Surfer uh, You got the horn fans. sci-fi right there. Yeah, they were, they were into all of it. And that's when I got into image comics because they were had these really out there 
other comics that weren't the expected thing because I'm, I'm not a, a real superheroes person um but i dug the stuff that that the independents were doing sure and um then largely because we just had a ton of comics around i got more knowledgeable about them um but we still had to go through a whole learning curve when we decided to do our own comic yeah and that was a two-year um time out well we learned the comics business and the craft of making comics and through the generosity of people like Steve Niles and um, Tim Bradstreet and, and guys, Bruce the, Jones and, and and Steve Niles did 30 Days a Night and Bradstreet's one of the greatest he's just a great artist oh, all yeah. around yeah and so those guys were very generous with their time advice uh, you know pointing in the right direction and then Bruce Jones being the one who originally started writing the story that that uh, we had blocked out for Asylum um, taught me by virtue of editing him more about, you know, why does this work? How do the page turns work? What is the dynamics here of storytelling? There's a rhythm to it. Did Bruce Jones write, he wrote The Hulk a few, like, uh, he's written a, he's written a ton of stuff. Uh, and I think he had one of the, in the last 20 years, uh, uh, one of the more successful Hulk revamps that they had over at Marvel where. Mm-hmm. And in Geekscape, if you're not reading The Immortal Hulk right now, I think it's the best horror book on shelves that is not under the Storm King umbrella. Uh (laughs) It's just a really really cool horror book. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, there's cool. I mean, there's a lot of cool product that I didn't make. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) As you see, you have a rocket raccoon on your your desk. Oh, yeah, and I've got, you know, lock and key stacked up over there. The Joe Hill book is great. You know, Saga over there. and. Mm Um, and Thor, Ragnarok, and, you know, I, I love comics. Yeah. And um, I really dig putting them together and putting together the teams in a way that's uh, more more like how we organize movies. And I think the teams are as shocked by what I do because they're not used to it just being, yeah, would well, you like so-and-so's art? Well, let's go get him. And, you know, how do we best tell, again, how do we best tell the story? How do we best make this comic rock in a way that's uniquely Storm King? And you love the craft womanship of that, like where it's like, I'm going to be, that's your craft, is yeah. this, this negotiating of parts. Puzzles. Uh huh. And, and uh, you know, it's fun. There's a lot I can say, but uh, Geekscape is, you, again, um, go check out Storm King Comics, especially if you're a horror fan or a sci-fi fan. There's a lot uh, that you guys can already digest. They've got their own app, and on the app you guys can not only read the, the, the books digitally, but there's some uh, augmented reality features to some of the titles. Yeah, to two of them. That's, what is that about? <laughs> I don't know, it just seemed like a good idea. To talk. It was Did it end up a good idea? It was just because it was Did it cool. work? Yeah, it works okay. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, I mean, it's, Why not go for it? It's it's icing on the cake. It has nothing to do with uh, whether the story inside is good or not. Um, it was just a cool thing to do because I saw it and someone demonstrated for me what we could do. And I thought um, that for San Diego, it was a fun thing for the fans to have their comic uh, start screaming and bleeding. <laughs> and I mean, come on, you know. <laughs> How can, how can you resist doing that? And then in the case of the New York Comic Con exclusive cover for Halloween Nights, um, 
an, another facet of the same company said, well, what if we did this and, you know, had the monster break through the window and that kind of thing. So it's, it's irrelevant inside, still has to be good, but they were just fun sure. things to do for our fans that, that, I don't know, I didn't have a good reason. Yeah, with the in, in 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 the question, I think that I was I was going to head to is with Storm King, the goal is not film and TV necessarily. You guys want to make good comics first and foremost, and if film and TV happens, these aren't just storyboards to try and sell a script, are they? No, no, and I think you fail if you're doing it to be something else. And there have been a lot of film companies that have done just that and failed. Oh yeah, and I had to overcome a lot of suspicion in the comics uh, community. Who thought? Oh, it's another another set of movie people coming in to rape and pillage. Mm-hmm. Um, no, our idea is to make the best comics we can. My my goal with Asylum was I wanted to take all the naysayers and have them want to collect that book under their bed. You know, I wanted to have the best paper, the best cool cover with illusions on it and everything else, and a great story inside, so that the the very person that looked the most askance at me coming to the Comic Con and having a table there or a, a booth was going to be won over. Sure. And um, that's always the goal. Every time uh, from, from whether someone's bringing me an idea or I have an idea and somebody else writes it or I write it, the idea is to take someone on a great ride in that comic. What I love about it is Thomas Ian Griffith is involved. And oh, yeah. I, Geekscape is, you know my brother Paul, and for us, I'm a big fan of Karate Kid too. Everybody's a big fan of Karate Kid 1, but the London brothers are huge fans of Karate Kid 3, <laughs> mainly because Thomas Ian Griffith's character is such a jerk. <laughs> oh, he is. Isn't he terrible? <laughs> he turns Daniel against Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, he's an evil kid. <laughs> it's an overlooked film, Karate Kid 3. Everybody talks about the first one for sure, and the second one is appreciated, but the third one, he turns the disciple against oh, his yeah. teacher. It's incredible. <laughs> Yeah, and but Thomas was the master vampire Valak in 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 our movie Vampires. Yes, and uh, he's a great writer. You know, he's been writing for Grimm and for a, a bunch of other things. You guys remember the TV show, of course. He was uh, one of the one of the writers on and producers. Yeah, and um, but he had this great idea about about a, a person with the gift of discernment, which in the Catholic Church is the ability to see uh, real evil or the truly divine but to disarm evil. And um, so that was a story that that he and John and I had been working on for a long time with the thought of doing a TV series. But this was way back uh, pre when they now like everything dark in in TV and filmed entertainment, where everybody said, oh, it's too dark. Sure. And they, that's what they told you, was too dark. Oh, yeah. They because when you discern dark. the evil, you have to absorb some of it. You have to take it into you. Have to you have take and it in. For a period of time, what was interesting about it to us was that you essentially have a Jekyll and Hyde story. And um, so it started out one way and then we evolved it into something else with the dual characters of of um, uh, the priest and, and detrec- Detective Duran. Um, but that's what I then went on with in creating the Asylum comic. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was, you know, Thomas still can't believe it turned into a comic. <laughs> is he okay with it? Yeah, I think so. I think so. But I remember bringing it up in the middle of a of a of a TV meeting at mm-hmm. Universal when somebody said, "Well, it's not like it's a graphic novel and we have to match to anything." You know, I said, 
actually it is. And I got kicked by a six foot five vampire and an agent at the same time. <laughs> like, yeah, we're going, what? <laughs> yeah, if, 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 you're, if you're pitching comics, Geeks gave us, if you're out there making comics, it probably is not for the financial reward. So I can see oh, God, no. why I can see why an agent would have kicked you under the table. No, you can just you can just sit in the shower and set fire to dollar bills instead of making comics. But um, but it's incredibly for for I don't know for people like us it's fun. You got to put the stories down. These things are in your yeah. head. They're possessing you. The voices are in your head. You got to exercise them some way. Yeah. And comics, like I said, not all not all things that would come from TV make great comics or things like this. Just happened to be something that was very visual. We'd had all the art put together for the presentations, and quite frankly, it was a better comic. Mm-hmm. And um, and I didn't have to listen to the studio. Going back to the idea of discoverability, and especially now because there's so much churn, and, and we'll wrap it up. Um, are there are there times that you and John or you and another storyteller went to bat and you took your swing and you think you made a product that was really good and it didn't get discovered until later or it didn't get discovered at all and you, you're still waiting for it to get its day in court that maybe the Geekscape is listening could go out and discover for themselves. One that's like, you know what, I wish that one had found that audience and maybe sometimes those audiences aren't ready until decades later to discover the material. Well, you know, that, that seems to be happening. I mean, uh, In the Mouth of Madness, Prince of Darkness... Mm-hmm were a little more cerebral than people were going for at the time. Um, and, and yet now they seem to, they come up as people's favorite movies of ours. So you, we just get surprised every once in a while because it all goes through. It, it, you have nothing to do with how people are going to take <laughs> right. what you create. And I think you can't worry too much about it. You just have to do the best you can with each story you have. Tell that story in whatever way it is possible. And, um, you know, you always hope the whole point of telling a story instead of talking to yourself in the dark is to communicate to somebody. So it's always great when it's discovered at whatever point it's discovered. And the ones you love the most, what would that list look like? Oh, man, I don't know. That's like, that's like you know, <laughs> picking your children. your kids, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I like all different movies and all different comics of ours for different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some I just think are a hoot, like... Uh, uh, you saw David J. Scow when you came in, and uh, he's written uh, The Standoff, one of our sci fi series yeah. that I think is a raving hoot. You know, alien spacecraft crash lands into a high security prison during a prison riot. I mean, come on, what could go wrong? Everything has already gone wrong on page yeah, one. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it's really cool. I think you're waiting for things to go right in that, in that series. Yeah. And uh, uh, at the same time, I love writing Asylum. Because I think it has issues of uh, that go deeper in people's um, issues of faith and uh, life and death and things like that. So to me, that's the kind of thing I write because you know I just think there's there's cool stuff to delve mm-hmm. into there. Um, you know, in our movies, uh, I didn't make it, but the thing is my favorite movie of John's. It's incredible. Um, but if it's summertime and I'm in a really upbeat mood, I'll watch Big Trouble in Little China. I don't think you can go wrong with Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. But also, I think that Starman is uh, there's this meditation on heart and humanity that oh, yeah. that while the thing is doing it as a rip roaring like slash fest and it's gore fest, Starman is really pensive. It's kind of a oh, really yeah. like beautiful movie. 
Oh yeah, I've had people come up to me and say that it saved their marriage. They watched it on on the plane on their way to Hawaii, and they were in a fight, and Ooh. they refell in love. And it's like, really? Okay, cool. <laughs> Your job here is done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I hope they put you in the will. <laughs> like, yes. oh, I, I saved your marriage. You guys are. Someone's going to be making cash off of this. Yeah. You guys aren't splitting your assets. Give me some of those. Yeah, I, it's just always nice when you found out you spoke to somebody. Sure. And I love Big Trouble in Little China. I had James Liu who's at doing sure. stunts for me uh, ten years ago. Yeah. James Liu is doing stunts, and every day I'm either asking him on set stories from Time Cop and working with John Claude Van Damme, uh-huh. <laughs> or I'm asking him stories about Big Trouble in Little China, and I love John and Kurt's commentary on that DVD. Yeah, it's fun. Where they're just revealing. They wanted to see if this would work, if you could make an action movie where the action star is absent in every single fight scene. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He... <laughs> exactly. He's not, the, he's not the hero. Uh-huh. And Escape from New York is kind of like a... a it, it, that is such a, a pulp movie, you know? And then, and then yeah. it, it just became something else in the 90s because it was the 90s and it had a different wrapping. Yeah. I mean, come on. If you could, if you could surf down Sunset Boulevard <laughs> with Peter Fonda and Kurt Russell, wouldn't you? Were there times when you just say, "All right, guys, have fun. <laughs> this was uh, sure. Awesome. Let's go for it, <laughs> rock and roll." Awesome. And if the audience isn't ready for it, too bad. Well, there's nothing you can do about it. Right. You, you always hope. Right. That, I mean, it's there's no presumption of being beyond the audience. The the presumption is that you're going to connect with the audience. And, um, you know, that's always the goal. The audience is paramount. Mm-hmm. The fan is paramount. You know, our, our, our goal is to entertain, whether it's, you know, in print or in movies. Right, but you're not psychic. So the best way to yeah. reach that is to do something for, that, that you love, that your instincts and your storytelling have told you, hey, this is going to be a fun gag. Well, Let's yeah, do the, the sequence. idea is to share. Yeah. Um, that's a whole idea, you know, from the beginnings of storytelling in a cave, mm-hmm. um, is you're sharing something. So, if to me, that that's where your true north is. Mm-hmm. Um, Sandy, thank you so much. Geekscape is Storm King Comics, and obviously, uh, keep your eyes peeled. Like on Geekscape, we're, we're you're Geekscapist now. You're now a Geekscape. Welcome to Geekscape. Thank you. Uh, And we're going to push whatever you guys have coming out because uh, read the books, Geekscape is Storm King Comics, and obviously if uh, Tales for Halloween Night and some of the other products and projects that come out um, get a chance to to meet your retinas, we're going to try and push it to you guys. Great. Yeah, we've got, you know, this this October there's another anthology, you know, number five. We made it to our fifth anniversary of of the Tales for Halloween Night. Um, that'll come out the first week in, or, or the last week in September. I don't know. I have to gauge towards aiming towards New York Comic Con. Oof, um, sure. But uh, that's coming out, and uh, the Twitch trade paperback's coming out, mm-hmm. and uh, we just keep we just keep rolling. That's an Alien Possession movie, Geeks. Uh, that's kind of an Alien Possession book. Geekscape is just kind of weird, and it, it may not be. That's just yeah. the hint I got from the very beginning pages of it. Was. So there's a lot of fun stuff going on at uh, Storm King Geekscape. And obviously there's a lot of fun stuff going on here at Geekscape. Um, Geekscape.net is where we hold all of our podcasts. You can find us on any of the podcatchers going on. If you do, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it. Please write us a, a five-star review and uh, tell your friends about Geekscape. we got tons of shows 
on the network now. Matt Kelly is kind of out of control. He's just adding shows. So if you're a video game fan or a TV fan or a wrestling fan, or any kind of pop culture fan, uh, I think that we have a, a podcast for you. And if not, we will very soon because Matt's kind of on a tear right now. Um, obviously, we're on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, all of those social medias. And I'm sure Storm King Comics is as well. Yep. We're everywhere. <laughs> Geeks gave us over and out. You're listening to the Geekscape Network.